Welcome back to No Fate, a Terminator podcast. I'm Michael here, your host. With me is my co-host Tanner Radwick, who is uh he's a good guy, you know? He's he's uh <laughs> we're happy to have him. I don't know what that was. <laughs> it's too sweet. <laughs> no one I'd rather do a Terminator podcast with. That is the truth. No one else could like I can. It's true. Also, I don't think there's anybody who would be willing to do a Terminator podcast with me besides you. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think there might only be like 12 people who actually watch the Sarah Connor Chronicles. So it'd be <laughs> kind of hard outside of the movies. <laughs> well, uh, we have a lot of other things besides even this show to cover Terminator-wise. So if, if you guys are worried that we're going to run out of content one day, don't worry. We'll be back. Anyway, we're going to jump right in. So this week, we're going to be talking about Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the fifth episode of season one, entitled Queen's Gambit. And before we forget, Tanner, let's go to that official description. Sarah reevaluates the capabilities of her friend Andy's computer after he enters it into a chess competition. During the competition, Sarah meets a stranger with a history similar to hers. Meanwhile, Agent Ellison finds remnants from a past Terminator battle. And then this episode, a little higher than the last few, got a 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb. 7.9. Well, I think this is where the show really starts cooking. Like you talked about earlier, you know, in a lot of ways, the first couple episodes are a long pilot for this show, but yeah. this kind of sets the stage and gets it rolling in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, this also, I think, has some kind of iconic scenes for me. We really start to see Andy's obsession with robots. He just outright says, man, I love robots, <laughs> and it makes Sarah uncomfortable. <laughs> So no, I like this. I like this episode. Uh, seven point seven point eight or seven point nine. Seven point nine. I'd say it's appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I'd give this episode think? an eight. I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Seven point nine to an eight. Sure. <laughs> that that uh, point one <laughs> is a uh, that's a factor for you, huh? It is. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, there's a lot that goes on in this episode. Um, but before like we dive into the plot element, there's something I really appreciated about this episode that that we haven't really talked about a lot. We've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but there's really small things that this episode especially does that makes John feel like a normal teenage kid. And I mm-hmm. really like that, like him getting Cameron to do his homework. That's a very teenager thing to do. You know, asking for lunch money. For, from Sarah so that he doesn't have to eat at home. It's just like a very little normal teenage thing. Yes. That he does that makes him feel like any of us, like you and I growing up when we did, like it makes us feel like that. And, you know, these little touches, they're really cool. They're really human in a lot of ways. And it helps us to connect with the angsty teenage side of John Connor, which is kind of fun. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's obviously some sort of development from his time between T2 and now. Uh, and it reminds us right. that even with all this weight uh, of the end of the world and all that on his shoulders, that he's still at heart a normal kid, even though he's very 
abnormal and has a very abnormal destiny. And so I think that's really cool. I really appreciate those touches. Exactly. Well, and they're also showing that, you know, there, there's all this extravagant, you know, there's lots of things that are happening to these people in their life, but they're also having to live a normal life as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and showing these little details makes it relatable and fun for sure. Also, just when he says to, to Sarah, or maybe it's not to Sarah, he just says it when he calls shotgun when they're getting in the car right. and Cameron just doesn't get it. She goes, I call nine millimeter. Like she just does right. not get it. And it's so funny, <laughs> but it's just like little things that make John feel like a normal teenage kid. And I like that. I really appreciate that because we don't really get to see John Connor be normal that much in Terminator lore as a whole, let alone even on this show, I think in a lot of ways. So I, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a nice added touch. It is. Well, and also, I mean, something that kept coming back to me, especially on this episode, actually, is uh, this show does a good job of highlighting John's humanity and especially contrasted with his mom. His mom, they almost contrast her time and time again with Cameron, mm. making Sarah come out to look more machine like than Cameron even is, um, especially with the writing the notes in this episode yep. and things like that. There's just this constant theme of Sarah is a machine on this mission, and Cameron is becoming more and more human um, interacting with them. And then somewhere in between there, we also have John, who is this constant beacon of humanity. He has he has this consistent, just extreme value for human life. And uh, John's extreme value for humanity also draws from um his rejection of his destiny um he yeah he doesn't like the fact that he has to be this hero and be the savior for mankind he just wants everything to be normal but he also knows the importance of every person it's just another reminder of the weight that's on his shoulders with the things to come yeah i agree you mentioned something a minute ago about contrasting Cameron and Sarah. And I think this episode does a very good job of that, especially with the example you gave about the writing of the notes. And it's really interesting when Cameron starts to recognize why people write notes to people who have passed away. And it's a way of dealing with grief to the point where she extends that to Sarah and Sarah completely rejects that. Mm-hmm. And she completely rejects that idea. Like it's a waste of her time. Why would she do that? That person's dead she needs to move on which is a very terminator like thing to do but sarah does it whereas cameron is is trying to learn she's trying to understand and i love that scene between cameron and the grief counselor because a it's just hilarious <laughs> like cameron it just reminds you how freaking weirdo cameron is especially when she starts talking about it's so freaking big she does that so perfect. Too. Uh-huh. She it's like an exact <laughs> replica of the other girl. It is doing it. And it's amazing. <laughs> and it makes sense because that's what Terminators do. They mimic. They they try and imitate humanity. And that's what she's trying to do here. Whereas Sarah almost does the opposite. She doesn't even care about trying to imitate humanity. And And there are moments. Yeah, there are moments where she hugs John and there's moments where that that emotion comes out and who Sarah is as a human being is actually shown. But for the most part, she tries to bury it. Whereas Cameron tries really hard to try and be human. 
and that's where the contrast is too because at her very core she's not mm-hmm. and we well, see that so as the show progresses and for both Cameron and Sarah to accomplish their mission successfully, they have to become more like each other. Yeah. And that contrast throughout the show and that theme is just so great to have. And I don't think that's something that's exclusive to this show. I think Terminator 2 does this with the Uncle Bob Terminator and Sarah as well. I think in that movie, mm-hmm. you see Sarah go full machine to the point where she's ready to kill Miles Dyson in front of his entire family and not going to blink. Whereas Terminate him. Yeah, exactly. Whereas John convinces the Uncle Bob Terminator, convinces Arnold that, hey, by the way, you're not allowed to kill people now. And he's like, oh, okay. So he actively doesn't kill people. And then obviously, like if you watch the extended version, when his switch is flipped, he uh, he starts to learn about that. And by the end of the movie, he says his famous line, I now know why you cry, but it's something I can never do. And it's this idea that he want he almost kind of wants to be human, right? But he can't. Whereas Sarah doesn't want to be human because it's so hard. And I think that that is done so well in Terminator Two, which is why that's one of our favorite movies. And I think that's echoed very well on this show between Cameron and Sarah. And John even tells Uncle Bob, we'll call him, <laughs> tells him, "You're not a Terminator anymore." Yeah, which is a pretty extreme statement. <laughs> Just to turn that off. Yeah. Um, obviously, in this episode, we find out that Andy has rebuilt the Turk, right? And he's entering into this chess competition, which, if he wins, means that he gets a government contract with the U.S. government. But he loses. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but maybe the reason he lost was because Sarah burned down his house and got rid of the original Turks Turk, you know, got rid of all of that material and that research in the first place. So he had to reboot it from scratch from memory and it wasn't as good. And maybe that's why he doesn't do that. that. Exactly. Maybe he would have won with his other one. And uh, it's interesting that they don't address that more because John asks Sarah, he says, well, so what now do we go after the Japanese team? And she says, no, because Andy is the one who is on the list, not the Japanese team. But but if they change fate, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they could have changed it. So, um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I wonder if the show had continued past season two, if they would have gone with something like that, explored how Skynet got created in the wake of Andy not being in the picture and some of these other people not being in the picture. And if they would have realized that, oh, it's because we made these decisions that fate kind of tried to recorrect itself. You know, history tried to recorrect itself. The timeline still wants this to happen. It's this idea that Judgment Day is like inevitable, kind of like T3 and all the other Terminator movies post two kind of pose that question. But I don't know. It's, It's just an interesting thing to think about. So Andy doesn't stay around long, though, because he gets killed pretty quick. And to Sarah's surprise, to Sarah's surprise and to our surprise, honestly, it's kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of shocking with how big a deal Andy has been. It's kind of shocking. He's just killed so unceremoniously, which, you know, that's a whole different issue that we'll get into later, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> way later. Um, but I think that's the reality of it, right? That's the reality of death. And it's like kind of the same way with the girl who commits suicide at John's school. It just happens. 
yeah. right? It just happens. And there's, it's not in slow-mo. It's not any, nothing like that. It just, it happens. It's done. And that's the reality of death. And that's, that's what we're fighting against when we're fighting against judgment day. And we see that here with Andy, like he's not even killed on screen. Um, at least we don't see that in this episode. And so he, he's just dead and the Turk is gone. And Sarah, Sarah sees this fourth resistance fighter kind of leave the scene who is Brian Austin Green, by the way, of 90210 fame. For those of you who like 90210, I didn't ever watch it, so I have no attachment to that. But he also played a cyborg on Smallville in its ninth season after the show was canceled. So there's another Smallville cyborg cybernetic organism connection for you. It's a lot of Smallville connections to Terminator. I know. It's because Smallville is You're just nailing it one after another. <laughs> How about that? How about that? But that fight between Sarah and this resistance fighter is awesome. Also, we can it just actually choreographed pretty good. It's super great. And do we we find out who he is in this episode, right? We can talk about that. Uh, I think we so. do because it's when she goes to visit him in jail. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and that, that's this episode. Yeah. So... Which this episode also is the jailbreak, which is another super cool fight. But we can get to that in a second, too. Yeah. So the fourth resistance fighter is actually Derek Reese, Kyle Reese's older brother, which is a completely new addition to Terminator mythology. Like he is not in anything else. Yeah. No video games, no comics, nothing. It's literally just the show. And he rocks. Derek's like the best. One of the best parts of the show. I'm so glad he's finally on because he's so cool. I, it, it works, too. It's one of those, you know, it's one of those things that maybe couldn't if you were if yeah. you were so diehard about you know just your kind of one and two timeline and you're like oh he's got like this other brother that they gotta stick in here but it's not like that no he's a likable character and he works and you can see the elements of kyle in there too that make it work yeah and uh i remember when i first watched this and it kind of it's revealed to you in a really cool way. And you get that same feeling that you can see on John's face, too, when he finds out. Yeah. And his face kind of drops and his heart drops. And it's this big deal. Makes it that much more important to save him, too. Right. And for John, I know John has had a, like a lot of surrogate father figures. He's had the Uncle Bob Terminator and Terminator 2 at this point. He's had Charlie, obviously, who is still... A, a major character or at least minor character on this show. But Derek is the closest he's gotten at this point or will get at this point to Kyle. He's the closest yeah. he'll get to his actual father. And sure, it's his uncle. So it's it's a different relationship. But I, I think as the show progresses, that becomes very important to John. And I think that, um, yeah. So they obviously go break him out of jail, which rocks. That scene is so cool. It's one of the, like the really big action parts of this show, and it's cool that they had the budget to make it look as good as it did. Because mm-hmm. of course they um, they wait for him to get transported out, and then they hijack his well, not hijack, but they bust him out of his transport vehicle. Yeah. While also also having to fight, what was it, Vic? Yeah, yeah, Vic, <laughs> the uh, the T triple eight who killed all the other resistance fighters in what the second or third episode. I think it was just the second. Yeah, it was pretty early on. But yeah, something like that. But it's a cool fight scene and it's intense. 
Mm-hmm. And it might be, is that the first time we see a chip get pulled out on yeah. one of these things in this show? It's definitely the first time we see a chip pulled out. That's on my notes, too. <laughs> yeah. So that's, it's the that's first kind of the significant of many. part, too. <laughs> so that's an intense scene. She gets in there and is having to hold him. It's super cool, though. I like that they don't just try and rip its head off or anything like that, because obviously they know from Cromartie that that isn't enough. You know, you have to you have to kill it at its source. It's a smart tactic that if they didn't have Cameron with them, they might not have either, either thought about or had the opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that fight scene is incredible. It honestly feels like something out of one of the actual films. Yeah, it's it's edited yeah. very well and it looks good. It's super well choreographed. Mm hmm. I think also one of the best scenes of this episode is the scene between Ellison and Derek while Derek is still in prison. Uh, um, our B plot line that our, we always forget about. We always even forget though we about. love it. Yeah, we do love we it. We love Ellison. Ellison's Ellison the best. Is honestly, Ellison is one of our favorite characters, and I don't know why we're not talking about him more. <laughs> <laughs> it's because at this point he doesn't have as I, much to do. I know he gets better and better as the show goes, but we always forget to bring him up on this episode on this podcast. It feels like. But that scene but, uh, is really good because he like connects the resistance safe house to the Cromartie murders with the skin and all that yeah. stuff. And then ultimately to Andy's murder. And it's like all these threads he's pulling together. Like he's obviously doing his job in the way that no other government agent is. Um, and it's pulling off and he's not fully connected all the dots yet. And he, he doesn't fully understand Derek's role and all that because obviously Derek didn't commit all those murders. But it's just really, it's really good. And you see that Ellison is just grasping at anything. And again, I think they use this concept, this idea of Ellison very well in Genesis with J.K. Simmons' character. I think he's kind of modeled off of that. But they do it right. so, they have so much more time here to flesh that out and to, and to make it work in a way that a movie like that couldn't do. When it it's able to happen over the course of so many episodes, and it's kind of like just fed to him in this little drip, just over and over and over again, and you can kind of like feel the frustration in him, but also like every new little lead he gets gets closer and closer to discovering what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I love how he's looking at Derek, and he can tell that Derek knows more that he's not letting on, and he's just practically begging Derek to let him in on what's going on. Because, of course, Derek already knows that, you know, he asks uh, what what connects all of these. And Ellison tells him the blood. And Derek already knows. It's not my blood, though, is it? Yeah. It, it just that frustrates Ellison so much that he knows, you know, you clearly know what's going on, but you're not telling me. Also, did they, I can't remember, did they connect Derek's blood to a young Derek? Uh, no, they did the fingerprint thing for the one resistance fighter. Right, because they did that with other Resistance fighters before, and we know they do that with Kyle and Terminator Genesis. They connect him to his younger counterpart on that right. in that film, and yeah. may, maybe they do it later with Derek, but they don't in this episode. But it seems like something that would really catch Ellison's eye, and because Derek's alive, it'd be something he'd be able to actually ask him about. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yet another thing that Genesis stole from the show. But this episode ends, the way this episode ends is they rescue Derek and they remove Vic's chip and all of that. But 
before all that happens, Vic shoots shoots Derek. And it mm-hmm. looks like he's about to kill him because his eyes are like fully set until Cameron like saves him last minute and it hits one of Derek's organs instead. But yeah, now Derek is in critical condition. And does the episode end with them bringing him home and John running out to get help? Or does it end with John getting help? It ends with John getting help. Right. So Charlie, Charlie comes back. Right. To help. And John complains to Sarah because Sarah is about to get a stun gun (laughs) to just kidnap a doctor, which how hardcore is that? How machine like freaking awesome machine like. And also I love the direction they went, but how intense would that have been if they went that direction and she had to go and find someone like that? Like that would have also made for a good television. (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. But I, I, you know, uh, John saying, we don't even know who this is. And then Sarah spills the beans and says, he's your uncle, which causes John to go off and find and to, and to Charlie. Back to our conversation earlier, when John storms out, you feel like that's his angsty teenager reacting. Mm-hmm. But what you realize is it's actually resistance leader, John Connor going into Future survival John coming mode. out. Yeah. And he goes to get the best person he knows how to deal with the problem because he knows it's not him and it's not his mom. It's Charlie. Which I didn't anticipate at all him making that move when I first saw that. So when you first see this and you see Charlie show up at the end, you get that same little heart flutter that you see on Sarah's face. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like, oh, there he is. And it's just so cool that he, you know, it, it, it shows how much they still mean to him. Yeah. And it's actually another point that we didn't touch on, but this is also the episode that we see Charlie have the conversation with his current wife. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. After Cromartie poses as uh, FBI agent, Robert Kessler and like interrogates him about Sarah and John. Right. Which is also a good scene. Yeah. It's a great scene. It's interesting though. The argument he has is with his wife. He, you know, he's like, I don't believe Sarah is a murderer. I don't believe she's this Mm -hmm. person because i knew her and his wife is like what the frick like you didn't Mm -hmm. know her Mm -hmm. she was only with you for x amount of months you don't know who this is and then once she finds out that john was in their house she really loses it and it's kind of hard to know who to root for in that scene because on one hand if you think about it for her point of view she's not in the wrong no well and yeah it's (laughs) <laughs> it's always fun. I mean, she 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 says, "I'm not that girl who you know. Is I'm not jealous, that girl who's yeah. going to get all jealous and upset." But as soon as she finds out John was in there, she kind of explodes, and I think rightfully so. I think. Um, well, I think the biggest thing was he didn't tell her, right? I, I think the lack yeah. of communication was the biggest issue when it came to that, and so of course well, she's going to blow up. That makes sense. And the idea that he himself is conflicted on what to do in that situation, right? Which in her mind, what does that mean? What does that mean for me and our relationship and, and our marriage and, you know, all of that? So, right. and I think, I think the show actually does a good job of highlighting too that I wouldn't say that they even make it seem, it, it, it's not like they have a bad marriage or a bad life together either. No. He found like a, a perfectly fine woman to be with, Yep. but he's still just so conflicted about the woman who he loved and wanted to marry before that he never had any closure with at all. Right. Um, so it's tough. It's tough for Charlie. Yeah. I think that's about it on my notes for this episode. 
Did you have any other thoughts, closing thoughts on Queen's Gambit before we close out? Well, if I think of any, I can always bring them up in our next episode. True. Heavy Metal. <laughs> no, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Heavy Metal was last week. Um, <laughs> a little behind the scenes sneak peek, guys. We're actually recording this episode in Dungeons and Dragons the same night. So <laughs> if our uh, conversation feels very familiar or seamless, that's why. These definitely are meant to be watched back to back, I would say, these episodes as well as our episodes are meant to be listened to back to back. So whenever Dungeons and Dragons comes out, definitely check that out as soon as possible. So with that, I guess we'll take off for the night. You can find us on our website, nofatepodcast.com. You can find us on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as on Twitter at nofatepod. Definitely come follow us there and talk Terminator with us. We love to interact with our fans. We love to interact with other Terminator fans specifically. And we just really enjoy talking about this stuff. We really enjoy talking about cybernetic organisms, as long as they're fictional. So (laughs) So with that, until next time, just remember, you are the resistance.